All right, what is up, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're watching and listening another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin's brightest minds, those who are doing really cool things and have uh, come to our industry, uh, and everyone really in between to understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now, where we're going. And it's kind of crazy because I was actually thinking about when this show started, where it's like the anniversary month or whatever, three years of the show. And I've just been spending a lot of time thinking about like how for all you guys who've been listening since episode one, hasn't the industry, hasn't the world or the relationship between Bitcoin crypto, it's completely changed. Like the coronavirus pandemic was a huge like growth acceleration for all of us. It exposed a lot of things that were over-promising and under-delivering, but it also exposed a lot of the, the amazingness and the brightness that, that crypto is, is bringing. And like, even people are like, yeah, we're, you know, crypto prices have had the ninth red candle in a row over the last, you know, nine weeks or 10 weeks. At the same time, like VC funding is at record levels. And, and as my guest will talk about today, people don't want to work in any other industry. They don't want to do anything else. Everyone just wants to do Bitcoin. They want to do crypto. And so the projects that that have launched and that were successful in the, in the past year launched during COVID, during a bull market. You guys haven't even really seen yet what comes out of the bear market because as like my friend Brock Pierce says, bear markets are for building and bull markets are for bullshit. You know, if you meet him in real life, he'll, he'll say like, yeah, bull markets are for bearing fruit, but like in private, it's, he's right. Bull markets are all the bullshit kind of happens. But anyways, we have a real treat. I'm really excited to talk about, to talk, to introduce you guys to my next guest, to talk about a lot of the cool things that he's done in his, in his very young life. Eric Tung. Eric, thanks for coming on Untold Stories today. Hi, I'm really, I feel really honored to appear to on this podcast, actually. Uh, I've been watching some episodes and um, felt, felt like it was all really great. And really would look forward to talking to you about everything I've been doing. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored. And, and uh, if anything, the show allows me to talk to people and bring them, bring them to light of, <laughs> of what people have been doing that is so cool that very few people even know about. And, and just to give, I want to give your background a little bit. Uh, you grew up in China behind like the Great Firewall. And for those who know there still still exists most apps and platforms and social media. Probably even this podcast is is not available in China. And at the age of twelve, uh, over ten years ago, you started working on on a on a virtual private network that's still being used today called Geth G E F H. And it's really it's a great website. I was on it earlier. Uh, um, what's it? Geth.io, right? Yeah, Geth.io, and um, still being used today in a lot of places like China and Iran, but probably also Syria and everything. And and now you're launching your new uh, blockchain. Did I pronounce it right, Demilio? Yeah. Um, and I, listen, I I look at a lot of blockchains and a lot of protocols, and I, I've read more white papers than anyone could imagine. It's like it's like you know whoever has read the most scripts in the world, like screenplays. I've not, I've read more white papers and and have seen more blockchains that have started and failed and started and been successful. 
um, usually very early on. But what's very intriguing is what you kind of did with this. And I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, can you t- tell me a little bit more about yourself? Like, what did I, what did I miss? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think like to, like to introduce myself, I think that I kind of had a rather different story about how I got into crypto. So it really comes back to how I got into like security and like cryptography and the whole cypherpunk stuff in general. So you are right. Like when I was very young, I think I was 11 or 12, I, I kind of made my first large software project. It, was, it, it wasn't actually the began at first. It was just a browser called um, Yaspa built on Chromium. It had some really cool features, but one of it was that it had a built-in VPN. And it let people in China, where I lived, to access blocked websites like YouTube, Wikipedia, and, and websites like that safely and reliably. And what building this really made me realize was that by coding and by learning cryptography and learning um, these technologies, you can make something with it tangible impacts on the world really quickly. You don't need to build a factory. You don't need huh. to make sure that your machine actually fits together. You just code your ideas and you're done. And with Yasid, I gave it to my friends. They can watch their cat, cat videos, learn stuff on Wikipedia, et cetera. And I could see that it immediately had an impact. And more importantly, it got me interested in cybersecurity and cryptography and the whole kind of like suite of cypherpunk technologies, right? And I was really fascinated because by building these simple cryptographic protocols like VPNs, you could achieve what seemed to me like utopian goals. Like you could protect privacy from a totalitarian government. You could um, encrypt data in such a way that only the person controls it, even if like everybody else in the world wants to get at it. And by the time I was 14 and I went to college, I was spending most of my free time just learning about security, doing things like going to, I was, I went to like PGP signing parties and, you know, lyrics from like IRC cats uh, that the Tor community ran and learn all about all those things. And kind of like, I treated like computer security as like basically my number one hobby. (laughs) And it was also then that I first encountered Bitcoin, actually. I think it was around 2013 and, um, I learned about Bitcoin from a friend and I found I found the whole idea so cool because it was like decentralized and secure in a way that none of the other decentralized things like PGP or BitTorrent was. I didn't understand things like consensus back then. I just thought, oh, this is cool. And I even had a phase where every computer I touched, I had to install a Bitcoin node on it. It was kind of absurd because I felt like I was contributing to the Bitcoin network by doing so. And I even did it to my friend's computers and computers in the school's lab and things like that. Yeah. That reminds me of like a funny story. I remember this very vivid memory of, it's like the one that got away of, I downloaded uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin software on my friend's Uh computer. And I didn't understand Bitcoin well enough to know that the whole blockchain had to be downloaded, downloaded for his instruments. And so I had sent him 50 Bitcoin. For the trend. And it, and I remember like, it didn't work. It was Friday night. We were like going out somewhere and I just didn't, he, we closed our laptops and we, and he never picked it up again. Like many years later he did. Both of us had thrown away either of those laptops. And I remember like, like every year or two, I just have like this rem- like memory, like maybe it's here or there. And just the other day I had like a breakthrough was I found like an email where he sent me in our old like AOL addresses, 
like his address. Like I sent him that fit and I mm -hmm. saw the 50 Bitcoin and it's sitting in that address still. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't yeah. get it. I didn't actually own too much Bitcoin. I just installed nodes everywhere and I polluted who knows how many hard drives with like blockchain data. So, but yeah, I was really excited about this kind of thing. And when I started my PhD program right after I graduated, um, I basically devoted all of my research into privacy protection protocols like Tor and Freenet. And my dream at that time was I wanted to build a better Tor that was trustless and decentralized. Because as you perhaps know, Tor is supposed to be privacy protecting, but their whole security depends on trusting the Tor project, which centrally runs the directories and things like that. Um, but trustless- I always wondered how that worked with Tor. Like when you download, I, I understand the concept of a yeah. VPN and Tor, yeah. how you know you have your own you know, internal or in intranet in your house where it's like you can have all your computers, yeah. but once the data leaves your home, and it accesses the internet, yeah. it's not through your internet service provider. It's not encrypted. All the data, all the cookies, yeah. your browsing history, but also like every footprint and and yeah. basically it's all unencrypted. And so it takes all the data. And so we're lucky actually that the internet was built in a way where data can pass through. It doesn't yeah. need to be like, what if the internet was built and there was a, a rule that all data needed to be unencrypted for like the government? Yeah, we would, I know. That internet, we're lucky. How did that even happen that we could have the internet as we know it today that's like untouchable by any government or whatever? I think it's super cool, actually. Like I, I actually read a blog post that touched on this in the past, which is really that the internet already is astonishingly decentralized. We have the biggest social institution of the planet being essentially completely privately owned, operating on, on its own rules. And people take it for granted that at least, you know, you have end-to-end -end encryption from you to Facebook, right? Um, and I think like that is really different from how telecom works before the internet. Right. Back in the day when people listen to other people's phone lines, the solution is to put those people in jail, not to um, encrypt the phone lines. And every security was managed in this top-down fashion where, you know, the phone freakers and stuff, they didn't expose vulnerabilities. That wasn't what people thought they did. They were just damaging the phone system and they got to be put into jail. But now we have this whole idea of kind of private internet security is totally privatized. And that's actually really fascinating. But yeah, like, as I mentioned, I really wanted to build like the next tour and um, that was decentralized and trustless. And that's a really difficult combo because um, if you're decentralized, it's hard to have consensus. And if you want like trust, you need some authority typically to kind of give people trusted reputations, um, which was how tour worked. And that was, uh, and then I kind of rediscovered Bitcoin and I felt, felt like Bitcoin is perfect for building this system I wanted to build because I was really drawn to how Bitcoin has incentives. It's not just a protocol, but it's, and it's not just a cryptographic protocol, but it's a crypto economic protocol. Its own incentives ensure that the miners and the nodes actually want to follow the protocol. So we don't have to trust people to tell people what software to run to make sure everybody is honest. And um, that really made me, that really struck me. And I felt like I'm going to build my dream um, communication network on top of Bitcoin. And I actually published quite a few papers um, in that area. I, I think I was one of the first people to embed an ENS-like naming system into the Bitcoin UTXO graph. So it's actually, I encode the- Really? Map. That's so cool. Yeah, I encode like the 
the name to ownership mappings into the UTXO graph in such a way that a thin client can just traverse the UTXO graph and get it without trusting anybody else. And I was super excited. I felt like, okay, this is one of the foundation building blocks. It's like the the the, the PKI layer, right? and I'm I'm going to build the rest. Why but, is that right, not not taken off yet? I want to use that. Well, yeah, but like, well, right when I was developing these things, the Bitcoin block size controversy hit. Yeah. Like, you know, every but every Bitcoin forum I was on, everybody was talking about it, and that really shocked me because. You know, I, I felt like in Bitcoin, I found an autonomous, trustless, self-sustaining, incentive-based protocol. And suddenly, something important like the blocks filling up happens. And what resolves that has to be something that felt to me very much like politics and very much like majoritarianism. They're um, very much like people coming around and you have to trust that Bitcoin community is generally good. I mean, I feel like the eventual solution they came up with basically segwits wasn't too bad, but honestly, it kind of shook this whole idea in my head because I felt like, okay, Bitcoin's supposed to be trustless and self-sustaining, but ultimately the protocol is maintained by the community and the community is not trustless. They're full of great people, but do I trust that 20 years later, the Bitcoin community is going to be filled with great no, people? No, I have an inherent mistrust of anyone who tries Absolutely. to like have any power in the Bitcoin world. Yeah. And so, the, and then um, when I look at other blockchains like Ethereum, it's like so much worse, right? Ethereum hard forks are just like a fact of life. Every few months, the next one hits yeah. and everybody just listens to Vitalik basically. And, um, and I, I started thinking, I really wanted to build a blockchain that doesn't mean any of this. And um, I also knew that I couldn't just tell people, hey, stop changing Bitcoin <laughs> because there was a pretty good reason why things happen, like governance happens especially when you want like a really general purpose blockchain like Ethereum, it seems necessary that it constantly needs governance, adding features, fixing bugs, this and that. Um, so, but then kind of my entire research became focused on how can I build this blockchain? A blockchain that's as general as Ethereum, but more trustless than Bitcoin. And um, I kind of eventually hit on this idea of let's make the blockchain as simple as possible but as decoupled from applications as possible and therefore as general as possible. And this kind of gives eventually a blockchain that's quite different from both Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'd love to talk about it a little bit later, but um, that became like the subject of my PhD thesis, kind of like all the research that went into this, including like a new incentive structure for a proof of stake, a new stable coin, like a new non-fiat stable coin, et cetera. And it was about to just be my research project. I didn't actually think of, I'm going to build this right now at that time. And how that happened was kind of accidental almost, which is that I was presenting my research on um, non-fiat stablecoins at an academic conference. Um, and then Polychain, um, the crypto VC, saw me giving my talk. And they were like, we've never seen anything that's even like that. So they wanted they, they, they thought I was building a stablecoin. They didn't know my whole, like, yeah. but then even just that, they felt like we were going to fund you, basically. And that's how Familio became like a production blockchain a little bit ahead of schedule. Yeah. And um, they, get, they did our seed funding and um, we built, like, I hired a team and we started building this thing at a production quality. And by now, like, it's been the mainnet has been running for almost a year. It's a very early beta mainnet of ours. Wow. And there's 
not too much things going on on it. But yeah, like that's kind of how I slid into becoming a blockchain person. You have multiple types of tokens. Yeah. Some are meant to be stable. You have a very interesting thesis on stable coins or, you know, tokenized dollars. Or uh, if you go to like my favorite site of stablecoins.wtf, it's a great Mm -hmm. website. Anyone should go to it. You can like see there's fiat backed stable coins, crypto backed, algorithmic and hybrid. There's a lot. Everyone's talking about this now. Everyone wants to know, like everyone understands very early on. I realized very early on that stable coins would need to be because you'd have like Mt. Gox dollars. And BitInstant, my company, sold more Mt. Gox dollars than it did even Bitcoin because people didn't want to buy Bitcoin retail. They wanted to buy Mt. Gox USD to then trade in and out of whenever they wanted to. And it was these like vouchers that we'd send. It's crazy. But um, I have an interesting thesis about this, but. Can you present to to everyone, like in your view, uh, how if Terra Luna would relaunch today, if it could be successful, like what what would need to have changed? Well, like um, I did write a blog post kind of on the subject, but I think the biggest thing that would need to change is that Luna needs a value proposition independent of UST. It needs a really strong backing. And UST shouldn't be the focus of the project because, um, you know, like in a natural, like good economy, like the circulating cash is just a tiny part of the economy. It shouldn't be the focus of all the thing. It should be the goods and services being transacted on here, the Luna blockchain. And I think if they do that, they'll have a much better chance of it being stable. But um, but in general, honestly, I feel like the US dollar stablecoin space is incredibly saturated. And yeah. um I think that DAI and USDC is all you need. That's how I, what I always find. And that's why, like, my, with, with my project, um, the native token mail, I don't actually like to call it a stablecoin. It's not supposed to compete with really other stablecoins. Um, what I'm building is essentially what Bitcoin wanted to be, uh, decentralized sound money. Um, the distinctive thing about mail is that, first of all, it's not pegged to the US dollar at all. Second of all, it doesn't use any kind of oracles. Like the whole issuance procedure is as completely trustless as Bitcoin's. And third of all, unlike Bitcoin, it has a low volatility. So now how does it do so is through a really unique mechanism that um, I can definitely explain. Um, but that my point is that I, I'm actually not that bullish about stablecoins. I think the market is very saturated and I'm not really building a stablecoin as a result. I understand. You, you... Every blockchain ecosystem is going to need its own internal stable asset in order for like that ecosystem to thrive. So that's why, like, you know, there is an incentive for for a lot of different projects if we're going to be in like a multi-chain world or whatever, which I think we are going to be in uh, for that to all be successful. Um, But I want to dig more deep into this because Mm. I don't think this is a stablecoin problem. I think this is a crypto utility problem. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Bitcoin is just trying to be Bitcoin. And for mm-hmm. a very long time, it's not ever attempted to even do smart contracts. It's not yeah. ever attempted to do anything more than be just like the hardest sound money that's immutable and no one can reverse it. Because who knows if you add different smart contracts, incentives could change and then maybe the yeah. chain won't be as secure anymore. Like, yeah. so we're lucky that we st- we have that and that's great yeah. utility and it's amazing. But crypto still does not have a lot of 
on-chain utility businesses mm-hmm. that provide cash flow, mm-hmm. except for really gaming, GameFi, gambling, uh, maybe some insurance products, and DeFi. And mm-hmm. DeFi is the killer app, decentralized finance, mm-hmm. if you can build end-to-end like where, where, where you have the folks who need access to rapid liquidity and folks who want to get that yield, if you can build businesses to like circumvent all these middlemen, but in mm-hmm. a regulatory compliant way, you can build some cool on-chain businesses. But there's a lot of utility that needs to be built down the road. Mm-hmm. So maybe like the stablecoin utility problem is a, is a problem of us, because like you said, the problem with that stablecoin is you need it to not be backed by Luna or you need what you said was you need real utility of Luna. Mm-hmm. But really what I'm saying is you need real utility for a lot of these token projects. Absolutely, yeah. So there so I'm investing in and looking at projects that are like hey, I'm going to create an on-chain business that the profits maybe can go towards a stablecoin holder. Because mm-hmm. then a stablecoin, instead of being like worth $1, the stablecoin is the right to $1 at the end of the year or something like that. You know what I mean? I, mean, so that I think be- things like that could work, but I feel like, you know, again, right? I think that it depends on what you're trying to do here. I don't yeah. think trying to stack stablecoins with ever more exotic um, financial structures is really the way to go, yeah, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the whole problem here is really that there's a false dichotomy here. I think the false dichotomy is between do you want sound money um, like Bitcoin or do you want stable money like, like, you know, um, USDC? And I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that you can build the asset that's exactly what the Bitcoiners want out of Bitcoin, but it doesn't have the volatility that scares people off of actually using it in their circular economy. And so Mel's main use case is not really to extract value and speculate on some financial system. It is exactly what Bitcoin is made for. It's designed to be the hardest, most decentralized, most sound money for use as money in a circular economy. I want people to use it to buy buy groceries. I want people to use it to back other financial assets. To just it, it just needs to be boring. You chose you chose one Mel to you chose it to be the value of if i'm if i'm correct like tw- the cost of 24 hours of computation yeah. because that the value of that has remained stable over time yeah um because and it might be surprising that it has remained stable right because computation has changed a lot but note that a mel is not defined in terms of a certain amount of computation but a certain time of computation on the fastest processor available at that time so, for example, you know, 10 years ago, a mail would be the cost of running computation on the fastest CPU available 10 years ago for a day. And now the value would be running the running more computation because now CPUs are faster and doing as much as Who can. defines that price? And the really cool thing here about the, the mail is that nobody needs to. You don't need a oracle for this. The whole you can design a, a trustless mechanism that measures this with proofs of sequential work. So essentially, you can submit a zero-knowledge proof. Oh, I see what you're get, saying. Get a certain amount of work. And that's the whole reason why I made this, because why well, I use this kind of strange metric. Because this way, the entire ecosystem can be oracle-free. And, okay. And, so yeah. you've taken like the Bitcoin difficulty style of, of like where you just make the number a lot bigger and you're measuring the cost to do that. 
on a 24 hour basis type? Is that essentially what you're doing, how it works? No, it's sequential computation here, right? So you're really proving that you did a hash of a hash of a hash of a hash like a million times or something. And that can only be done sequentially one by one. And you prove to the blockchain that you've done this this much work. And that that can only be produced by one CPU core. You can't ASIC, you can't parallelize it. And when when people submit these proofs, the blockchain then can see who is the fastest person I've ever seen um, do these proofs. And that defines what a day is, right? That defines how much hashes can the fastest guy make in a day. And therefore, when people submit these proofs, that can, the number of hashes they proved can then translate into days instead of America. Yeah. And, 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 and in order to build the, the, you know, a faster supercomputer or in order to be able to be the fastest one, yeah. you'd need to have you know, an epic amount of investment in metals and, and different types of like widely available resources, but also finite amount of resources, plus yeah. manpower, plus land, plus energy. So it's like it's you're like a super diversified. Basket. Yeah, you've created like a CPI almost. Yeah, exactly. That's very cool. And it's trustless and measurable. And the really cool thing is that once this is like the reserve currency of DeFi, oh. the whole DeFi ecosystem doesn't need oracles because you want prices, just look at, I don't know, Uniswap pools or something. You don't need Chainlink and oracles to tell you prices anymore because the prices are measured against a stable non-fiat asset. Have you backtested this cost? I'm very curious to like, do, is it published? I want to see this. this yes, is cool. it is actually. Um, we have like this GitHub page where we backtested this cost across like historical CPU prices, electricity prices. It's been around 30 cents. Like running a CPU wow. has been around 30 cents for like the past 15 years or so. Yeah, your your uh your community is nice and strong. I see it's between the GitHub and and your Telegram and and all your socials. It's and 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 you've only really done seed funding with Polychain last yeah. year or something like that. That's it's, you guys are in a really great spot. Mm-hmm. This is this is some really cool stuff. So you so there are parts of the blockchain or like you would say the constitution of it that can and will never change, even if you've taken over the whole chain or done something like that. There are like parts of it that yeah, can never but, but you see the thing here is really that it's not in a constitution because I can't just tell people not to change it, right? If the community wants to change it, they're going to change it, right? True. Instead, the whole idea is that the blockchain is designed in a way to, first of all, it wouldn't have much to change. There wouldn't be a lot of need to change. It's a very simple protocol, very much like Bitcoin, how you know Bitcoin is much harder to change than Ethereum, also just because there's less knobs to tune. And the second reason is also the whole use case of this blockchain is really different from other L1s. It's, it's designed to be decoupled from applications. It's designed to be like a root of trust that you kind of build layer twos, layer threes, layer fours out of, and like have a really diverse ecosystem that remotely depends on the blockchain. And what this means is that it's going to be impossible to actually coordinate a new protocol chain. Um, I like to use the internet protocol as an analogy. So right now we're talking over the internet, but the basic protocol of the internet, IPv4, it's been around since the 1980s. Yeah. And um, every all the other protocols take it for granted. And we've been trying to coordinate an upgrade to it, to IPv6, since the 1990s. Yeah, I, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, and this is where I think blockchain should be. It should be so simple that all the other internet protocols take it for granted. So when somebody tries to take it over, nobody gonna, nobody's going to listen. 
all the different like embedded devices and other protocols, all these hundreds of other application stacks. That's why, yeah, backward compatibility, right? Yeah, and the really like really like um, interesting thing here is that this also means the blockchain needs to be general purpose. So well, the thing point. about Bitcoin is really that it's really simple. It's hard to change, but because it's bound to a particular application, it constantly has pressures to change because you know the blocks are filling up this money transfer application is not doing well right and people want to make this application better but to make this application better they got to change the blockchain um i'm that's why i'm also really happy that lightning network and things like that are becoming bigger on bitcoin because i think to have the blockchain in its right place it has to be decoupled from the application it acts kind of as the final arbiter or like the root of trust in the whole ecosystem. So for example, your app might not be anything related to money or blockchains. It could be, let's say, a peer-to-peer social network um, that's end-to-end encrypted. And the relationship to the blockchain could just be as remote as everybody's public keys are on, let's say, a roll-up that's verified on a blockchain. And everything else is off-chain. The communication's off-chain, the incentives are off-chain, everything else is off-chain. But kind of like the security critical part is backed up by the blockchain. So your whole your decentralized social network is safe. And when people use it, they don't think about the blockchain. And I envision kind of like the blockchain taking this role of of supporting the security of all sorts of um, decentralized secure communication protocols, publishing protocols, et cetera, and just be taken for granted by this whole ecosystem. It's not most of the logic is not going to be on chain, and most people developing on this ecosystem wouldn't perhaps wouldn't even deal with the blockchain at all. And um, I think this is how we actually get mass adoption of decentralized security. We can't do it by pushing people into DeFi and what we now call Web three. We need to expand the horizons into all these security critical apps. That's a really good point. That's a really really good point. It almost makes me think about if we've crested that time when crypto and blockchain was and Bitcoin was for all of us. But now are all these businesses and mm-hmm. projects being built for just enterprise, for just, you know, the Internet service providers of the future? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, how I access the Internet is through a company that we pay. Or mm-hmm. something like that, or my cell phone. It's another company, or mm-hmm. so at the end of the day, it's like these gatekeepers. So you know, VPNs, what you built, they were very personal. Everyone had someone who was using it had a reason to use it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. now with the internet, uh, it's a little bit different. So I'm wondering if we crested that time yet. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that the thing is also just right now the existing L1s and the whole Web3 culture, so to speak, is really focused on just doing the things in the blockchain itself and the few applications that it makes sense where it does so. It kind of reminds me of, let's say, when the internet first started and people just thought it was, okay, it's sending packets. And, you know, people didn't really know what to do with it, right? Um, like they, they, they didn't figure out web pages or, you know, um, phone calls or anything like that on the internet. There's so much we don't know. Yeah, and it just feels like, you know, um, but then once people really realize that this is actually like a general purpose, like kind of a narrow waste protocol that you can just innovate infinitely on top of, but not go within it, that's when the whole thing exploded. So like the internet, I feel like, as I kind of alluded to, 
I think it's a turning point in the whole way telecom, right? Previously, every network we had was top down and like integrated, right? The phone system was like this international cartel of like government backed monopolies. Oh, yeah. And the whole system was like, you know, there, everybody sat down and standardized everything, every aspect from the phone lines to the phones. And um, that's the next version of phone network. And 10 years later, everybody sits down again and does governance, right? And the thing is that this really reminds me of how blockchain works, works now. You know, every few months, the community sits down together and thinks, what should we do to this outline? And let's add these features. And then a new, more complex update um, pushes out. But instead, I think the key to actually mass adoption of this technology is you need to figure out this narrow waste, this part that supports the security and the functionality of everything else. But itself, it doesn't need to change. Yeah. And, yeah. and never innovate inside it. And I this think that's is, the vision. People don't study that enough. People don't study that enough. That that's the the game theory. That's the socio token economics behind this whole thing. The reason that we're here today. Very few people. I feel like I'm talking to a an echo chamber sometimes on this show because that, that's the why. Why does this all work? Why are we here? How did we get here? Like it doesn't make sense to me. So many times I think about it. Yeah, and I think like the key killer feature of you know, blockchains is endogenous trust, right? That's the word I use. Like you trust the system because of its own internal rules and it incentivizes people to do the right thing. Hmm. And you're not trusting people. You're trusting the design of this protocol. And that should be what we all want to build. But instead people are just like doing, making this really complicated protocols that honestly often have very broken incentives and then just throwing the back to community governance to fix things when things break. And I think like that's not what this new system is about, right? If you want to trust um, the Ethereum community, for example, to make make the right choice all the time, why not have, I don't know, the government run a blockchain? I mean, you can trust the American public too. That's also a community. That's also majoritarian, right? Uh, I feel like it's, I feel like people are missing the point of this whole decentralization and trustless, trustless thing. It really means trusting a mechanism that's very simple and obviously self-incentivized. It doesn't really mean trusting communities or trusting decentralization in the vaguest sense. It's, it's, this is so cool. This is, so where, where is the state of the blockchain now? Are the tokens trading anywhere or um, is it still, your main is release. I'm going to go check the mail token. No, like the token is not released yet. So the mainnet is released because we wanted like people to participate in testings early, um, but we're not kind of ready yet for like actually doing our public token sale. Um, so we're planning on doing it sometime later this year. And it would mostly be selling our proof of stake token actually, which is not the stable mail token. The mail token you can mint yourself and you can actually get mail now by minting yeah. it. And you can participate in the sequential proof of work lottery, so to speak, and get your own mail tokens. And but the proof of stake tokens are separate because um, I think that the ideal properties for a proof of stake token is very different from a currency because proof of stake tokens should be volatile; they should reflect the network value, uh, but money should be stable and sound. Right. So we're going to be selling the proof of stake token later this year. Um, and I think like a big thing we want to do before that is really just to get more activity on the blockchain and have like a robust developer community of people excited in this completely different paradigm of using blockchains. I'm excited about this too. This is really, this is really cool. I'm really, 
And and how you you know you just went to a Bitcoin conference and you were presenting something that you were studying. It was actually was like, not a Bitcoin conference. What was it? It was, it was um, a conference at MIT on crypto economic research. So it was like a peer-reviewed academic um, conference. And I was presenting the mechanism of how I measure this day of sequential computation and how that can back a completely oracle-free stablecoin. And um, that's what attracted Polychain's attention. Wow. This is really, I'm very impressed by by what you're building. Do you, do you have any um, wish lists for applications that you would like to see people build on top of it? Absolutely. I think that um, one of my big wish lists is essentially like a, a like public infrastructure, because I think people don't realize how horribly broken the public infrastructure of our current um, internet is. You know, now we all have HTTPS, things are encrypted, but all of that really um, relies on a very um, insecure, very centralized. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like it combines both the bad things about centralized networks and decentralized networks. It's like it's insecure, even if you trust the centralized parties. Um, I can go on and on about it. Oh but basically, God, yeah. like it's, I think that's that actually opens up so many applications, right? If you have a decentralized PTI, then what that means is that when you communicate, you don't trust the infrastructure. You can much more easily build, let's say, decentralized social networks, decentralized, um, you know, Twitter, decentralized end-to-end encrypted messengers and things like that, because suddenly um, you have like names that you can trust have the right public key. And yeah. I'm actually kind of shocked that people don't do this as much with ENS. Well, the 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 problem is people have to trust the chains too much still. It's like you're being Absolutely. pitched on a blockchain. Yeah. Instead of you saying I, we should order what are you gonna say? Sorry. Yeah, and I think that's the whole problem, right? I don't I shouldn't need to think about whether I trust the blockchain. The blockchain exactly. should be obviously secure. But but honestly, right? So for example, when I built GAF, I needed a PTI too. I could have used ENS to authenticate people. I didn't. Why? Because at the end of the day, I trust kind of like my hand-built service put into, into a colo more than Ethereum. I mean, who knows what crazy hack would happen on Ethereum and maybe they'll do the next DAO hack and like mess up or like mess up the governance, right? And it's so complicated to use too, and it's very geared towards their use cases. So I think this is like such a huge missed opportunity because if you, if you think about at the core what a blockchain is, it's trustless trust, right? What that's like, isn't it? Shouldn't it be obvious that the apps that need this are the security critical apps, the really, um, you know, life and death apps where whether this encryption is sound, um, lots of people count on it. But instead, those apps are not doing it. Oh, you're not. so right. Yeah. Twitter's not using it. Uh, PGP's not using it. Journalists in, I don't know, like oppressive countries, they're not using ENS to encrypt anything. Instead, it's kind of like these DeFi stuff that honestly don't need all that much. Support. It takes time. It takes time. Absolutely. Things like that will change. Um, yeah. It's like, would you would you have thought that, you know, 13 years later or whatever, people would still need VPNs? I think people would need them more, actually. Oh, you because, thought it was going to get more controlled? Well, well I, I think, like, I, I envision a world that is going to get more controlled. I mean, in China, it definitely became I, more. Yeah, I agree, unfortunately. And I think even here, you see kind of like the opening signs of increasing internet censorship and things like that, right? So like you could easily imagine a world where, let's say, um, 
let's say deplatforming really goes out of control, and you know American platforms are just can't host certain content, and then I don't know they move to oh, this podcast various, would get banned. Yeah, <laughs> let's say you know you moved move your podcast. I don't know some Eastern European country servers or in some place like that. Uh, the logical next step would then to be start filtering international traffic, right? To ensure they comply with domestic regulations, right? So like, I think like um, people in the West, I feel like they often don't realize how easy it is to censor things on the internet if you control it at the network. Uh, all you got to do is just to pass everything through like sophisticated machine learning algorithms, which we are getting better at and classify the traffic into what content it is and block it. Um, people often have this misconception that the great firewall is like just a firewall and just any VPN can get across it. No, it's very sophisticated. They do like, they use like really cutting edge research to detect VPNs and classify traffic into what's even in the VPN. They can guess at it by looking at the patterns wow. and um, block things that way. And so like, so yeah, it's actually my my like kind of anti yeah, How do you do it? Yeah, it's actually like, quite clever, I suppose, like the way GAF works. And of course, a lot of it is not my own research. I, I would say it's more the kind of productionization of a lot of research that hasn't been actually used in practice. Um, so how GAF works, it's actually quite easy to explain. There are two pieces to GAF. First, there is like a centralized authentication server. Uh, that's like the central point of trust. And people communicate with the server through really roundabout ways that can't be censored. So one example is that um, I have an Amazon S3 bucket, right? It's just like a file repository. Sure. And my users, to communicate with my, my with my central server, both my server and my users just upload files into the packet and see what's in the packet, in the, in the, in the bucket, right? So this process is really slow uh, and it's very low bandwidth, but it can't be censored without blocking the Amazon S3 service as a whole. Because the traffic just looks like you're using Amazon. You're using any other Amazon S3 service. Oh, so, so, so as long as Amazon there. doesn't sell me out, the Chinese government can't do anything. They don't know it's me. And then, okay, so now that you've established this very low bandwidth bootstrapping connection, then what happens is that the central server then gives every user a different set of um, VPN servers. And when they actually connect to the VPN servers, they use like an obfuscated protocol that can't be classified. So it's designed to be look like any other innocuous traffic. So everybody, so, so you can't detect the VPN protocol by looking at the traffic. So now the, what the police would want to do is that they will register an account and get a list of servers to block. Right? Now that's where everybody gets a different list comes in. And the really cool part is this. I have a real-time monitoring system that can detect which servers get blocked at which time. And what this means is that I can then deduce which of my users are selling my servers out to the government because I can then detect. Oh my them. God. If, they, if I give a server to that user, within a day it gets blocked. But if I get a server to that user, it never gets blocked. So I actually have this whole heuristic algorithm that monitors everything. And then I can detect which are the sibyls, which are the bad people. And there's actually a lot of bad people. Like they're, they've been trying to block my system for years, and um, and then I feed those people servers unique to them. So let me ask so you a question: They block themselves. They never block anybody else. What if you attributed a unique NFT identity to each of those good and bad users, 
And that, I think that would actually be bad, right? Because like the thing is really that um, you want this permissionless. You don't want people to have to buy an NFT. Which no, no, no. Is- like for your own data, I meant to say like, because you're doing machine learning on your own now and you're creating like a, you can figure out who through anonymous identities where you don't need to know the actual who, but you know who is is an actual good user who's not selling you out to the Chinese government. So you can almost yeah. launch a blockchain yourself and only airdrop tokens to like good users. Yeah, you could you know do I mean? something like that, but that's so crazy. I, I guess, but you, but the thing is, actually, like it's it's not like tokenized or related. no, no. But it's just cool to think about that stuff. Yeah, and the the final really coolest part is this, right? So they they. When I detect the police, they got to get new accounts, right? So now you might be thinking, okay, they can just get new accounts. And the first time they come, they can always buy some service, right? Now, the problem is that they got to pay me to subscribe to this service. And to get new accounts, they pay me. And I use those accounts to buy even more service. So they literally can't win. So like the more they try to... But you're a very sophisticated mole. It's great. Yeah. And honestly, I think that Gef is the only actual VPN I know in China that I would say it's actually hard to block. The others, I I would say they're either the government hasn't gotten around to blocking them or they literally work for the government. There are actually a lot of like Chinese VPNs that basically sell their user data to the government to not get blocked. And um, it's a pretty um, wild place. So cool. This is really, well, thank you for taking the time and, and teaching us about so many different subjects today. Uh, I'm very impressed about what you've got going on. And, 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 and I was actually just on an investment committee meeting this morning and we're like, we need to see what the new class of, of projects are that's gonna, that are going to be launching next year because this is getting a little bit you know, bleak now. So, mm. so thank you for reinvigorating us. And, and you're giving our listeners a lot of enjoyment. People go for long car rides and they always tell me it's like wow like within one hour i learned so much that i didn't know before and and i'm learning too so thank you again and um how can my listeners follow up like what's your best point of con like should they follow your twitter to get all the links yeah i think that follow my twitter join the discord and really just uh, stay tuned because recently we're also going to be releasing a lot of documentation for um our smart contract language melodion which is really different from Solidity. And it really reflects kind of our vision of how layer one apps should be like. And I would really love interest and discussion about that, actually. So. Very cool. Thank you so much.